For tonight, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah 34. We'll get there momentarily. After open warfare between Israel and Palestine was renewed and reignited this past Saturday, of course, the world's attention has been diverted from Ukraine and is once again focused on that little piece of land on the east coast of the Mediterranean known as Palestine or Israel, the proper name of which, I guess, depends on one's political and religious beliefs. Uh, within hours after the attacks, the Israeli government actually uh, began commenting on its own intelligence and security failures in allowing these attacks to happen in the first place. But to many, actually, it appears that just as the Bush-Cheney administration actually ordered American defenses to stand down on 9-11, 2001, in order to kick off a new round of wars in the Middle East. It appears so did the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, do the same thing in this instance to stage or to allow this attack by Hamas to create a false flag for an attack against Iran. That is the ultimate agenda here, which is to attack Iran in addition to neutralizing any hope of a two-state solution to the Palestinian problem over there. And so perhaps... It's more fitting than many people realize that Israel soon called the attack Israel's 9-11 moment, while the alleged mastermind behind the attack, Palestinian militant Mohammed Daif, uh, calls it Al-Aqsa flood as an attack that he allegedly began planning over two years ago after Israeli settlers desecrated the Alaska Mosque in Jerusalem, that of course being Islam's third holiest site. Brother Jim sent me a link on Monday to a brief but very insightful article by Paul Craig Roberts. And I'm going to read most of that article for you here. Paul Craig Roberts says, I'm being asked about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, which seems to be taking attention away from the Ukraine-Russia conflict. People by which I mean people who pay attention are wondering why the Palestinians would attack Israel like this as it provides Netanyahu with an excuse to grab the remaining bits of Palestine and destroy the Gaza Strip thus disposing of the two-state solution by conquest. Who can blame Israel after the Palestinians killed Israelis and took hostages? He said, I do agree with readers that it seems a curious thing for Hamas to do as it plays into Israel's hands. I also agree that there is something else strange about the attack, writes Paul Craig Roberts. He said, how did drones and so many rockets, allegedly from Iran, and some say Ukraine, get into the Gaza Strip? And how did the Hamas attackers get into Israel? Uh, many of which I would add, we know, flew in by paragliders. Uh, he writes, the Hamas attack has something of 9-11's flavor. Just as every aspect of the U.S. national security state failed simultaneously on September 11, 2001, Israel's security system, including the Iron Dome, the U.S. constructed for Israel, simultaneously failed. Mysteriously, the Hamas fighters entered Israel on the ground through the air and on the sea without being detected. Mysteriously, large quantities of weapons entered Palestine through Israel without being detected. He says there is too much convenient failure to be believable. He says it will be interesting to see if anyone in Israel is held accountable for the total security failure in the U.S. No one was held accountable for the security failures on September 11th, which should have told us a lot. Not knowing, but we can speculate, writes Roberts. He said, we have a motive. Israel can now steal the rest of Palestine. Another motive might be that Israel can expand the conflict to a wider war and succeed this time in grabbing the water resources of southern Lebanon, 
It could even get nastier with Israeli moves against Syria and Iran. Oil prices could go sky high, causing world disruption. A victorious war and the end of Palestinian problem would free Netanyahu from his legal and political problems. There's a lot to think about here. He said, but let's move on to the security failure that made the attack possible. Why would Netanyahu enable Hamas to attack Israel by standing down Israel's security? It seems a nonsensical question, but it isn't as it creates the conditions in which Israel can absorb all that remains of Palestine, just as 9-11 created the conditions for neoconservatives to launch the wars they had planned in the Middle East. The difficult question, he says, is why would the Palestinians bring on their own destruction by attacking Israel when Hamas has no prospect of defeating Israel? That's what I was screaming the other day. Uh, again, we can only speculate it could be an Israeli operation from start to finish, he says. I don't say these speculations suffice as the explanation, he says, but I would not be surprised if these speculations, if investigated, would prove to be closer to the truth than whatever official narrative emerges. And so that article by Paul Craig Roberts very well expresses the questions that many are asking. I was rather loudly the other day exclaiming to Mary on Saturday how stupid these attacks are, uh, you know, on the part of Hamas. They have to know they're going to be crushed as a result. And so it certainly appears that Israel did indeed let its guard down intentionally. That's the way it appears. Just as the Bush-Cheney White House did on 9-11-2001, and it's possible that Mossad may have got inside and they encouraged the attack from the inside Hamas, which actually may not have been very difficult to do because they've been giving Hamas reason for decades for them to try to pull this off. At the same time, and as a possible warning of things to come tomorrow, a security alert has been issued, and it's based, on, I guess, on what Brother Michael sent me yesterday, which was an article posted to Canada's Western Standard News Outlet, in which former Hamas leader Khalid Mashal calls for a, quote, global jihad applied on the ground to be implemented tomorrow, Friday the 13th. I'm just going to quote an excerpt from the article real quick. Khalid Mashal, former leader of Hamas, released a video Tuesday asking Muslims worldwide to apply jihad on the ground rather than just in theory. In the video, which has been removed from YouTube after less than 24 hours, he called Friday, October 13th, the Friday of Al-Aqsa flood. Mashal called Hamas militants to attack, to attacks around the world, targeting Israelis and Americans during the Muslim weekly prayer. He said, Friday will be a day for Muslims to show anger towards Zionists and America. He called for militants in Muslim countries and also among Muslim diaspora around the world to participate in the Friday of Al-Aqsa flood. Secondly, he called for financial jihad asking for financial support from Muslims around the world to give to the fighters of Gaza in order to compensate them for the destruction. Thirdly, he called for Muslims to apply political pressure to stop Israel's military invasion of Gaza. And then finally, he called for Muslims worldwide to carry jihad by their souls and to fight and be martyrs for Al-Aqsa. So that is the situation at present. That brings me now to Isaiah 34 where we read, beginning in verse 1, Come near, ye nations, to hear. And hearken, ye people, let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury is upon all their armies. 
You have to utterly destroy them. You have to deliver them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stinks shall come up upon their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. And of course, that points to a last day's event. And the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, which we, of course, see John quote from in Revelation. And all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree, which Jesus, of course, quoted also in his Olivet Discourse. Verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and in great slaughter in the land of Idumea. Verse 8 then says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Controversy of Zion. This past Sunday I preached that the second seal of revelation may have just been loosed by this Hamas rampage against Israel on Saturday. And while I still say that may well be true, and while this passage that mentions Idumea, which is the land of the Edomites, as the object of God's wrath, and the prophecy here may have had an initial fulfillment in the days of Isaiah, as some believe, all that said, whether the second seal had been loosed or not, this prophecy of Isaiah finds its ultimate fulfillment, we see by the context here, in the days that we find ourselves to be living in right now. This controversy of Zion that is raised in that land with the Jews and the Muslim Arabs fighting against each other for control of Jerusalem and for control of that holy hill of Zion, began in the early 20th century. It intensified in 1947, and it was greatly exacerbated then in the 1967 Six-Day War. And of course, it's flared up in many uprisings and conflagrations ever since. The entire controversy of Zion centers around a central question that many are asking today. And that question is, who actually has a claim of ownership to that land that was once promised to Abraham under the Abrahamic Covenant? which some uh, believe are still in effect today. Who owns the land? Who owns the land? That is the question. It's a very complex question. The answer to which many Christians, especially those of the Schofieldite dispensational variety, do not want to accept. Many such Christians today presume the Jews have a right to that land. They have a right to drive the Muslims and Arabs out of it just simply based on the old Abrahamic covenant. However, that is not what the Bible teaches. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 12. Many of you will recall back in 2017, I preached a series of messages from this passage on this very same controversy of Zion, in which we went through the whole history of the Zionist movement that began with Herzog's um, World Zionist Organization back in the late 1800s. And for those who have not heard or don't remember those messages, I encourage you to go back and listen to that whole series of messages to get the entire history of what underlies the current controversy of Zion. For tonight, I'm going to give you a very much condensed summary and review of some of the points I brought out in that series of messages. My personal view is actually about the ongoing feuding between Israel and the Palestinians changed quite a bit in 2017 after I was encouraged to actually study the issue. But what has not changed at all, in my view, of this topic 
is that God does still have a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. I do believe that God is at work in guiding the outcome events in the region of Israel to set the stage for the return of our blessed Lord. And what I also believe in connection with that is that this passage in Zechariah 12 could not have been fulfilled in history. And I also do believe that this passage in Zechariah 12 will one day, and I believe soon, be brought to pass. So we read here in Zechariah 12, verse 1, The burden of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. In that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. This, by the way, is Zechariah's restatement of Isaiah's controversy of Zion. This is what it's all about. And while Preterists and Historicists do their best to try to explain how this passage in Zechariah was fulfilled in history through various sieges that have been brought against Jerusalem, and there have been several, we can only conclude from the context here that there is no way that this passage could have been fulfilled at any previous time in history. Because at no time in history, at any time when the Lord did allow invading armies to gather themselves against Jerusalem, at none of those times was Jerusalem and Judah delivered and rescued in the most miraculous and glorious way that we see they will be rescued in this passage. Look down to verse 8. Where Zechariah says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. And shall come to pass in that day that I, the Lord, will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is, that is in bitterness for his firstborn. From that phrase, of course, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. We know that this important passage that is really crucial to our understanding of God's plan for the nation of Israel can only be fulfilled at the glorious return of our Lord to rule and reign on this earth when he himself will deliver them from the destruction that has been plotted against them. As John quotes from this passage uh, in Revelation 1, verse 7, John says, Behold, he, Jesus, cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. John said, And they also which pierced him. They're a direct reference to this passage. And John says, All the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So John says there in Revelation 1, that passage wasn't fulfilled yet in his day. And it's yet to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. So what we see here in the this rescue of Israel in the last days is that Israel must be somehow regathered to that land prior to this event of this glorious return of our Lord. And we need to understand that Israel, meaning the Jews, will be regathered to that land. The only question is, when does that happen? That's part of the debate. Some think it hasn't happened yet because they're not real Jews over there. 
In Romans 11, Paul says Israel will be brought to repentance. That all Israel will be saved. But when does that happen? As I've stated before, the Jews must be gathered back to that land while still in unbelief before they can be later brought to repentance and turned to Christ. We also read in Joel 3, 1-2, For behold, in those days and at that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, God says, I will gather all nations, I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, I will plead with them there for my people, for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So after they've been scattered, they're going to be brought back. I, as you all know, am a staunch premillennialist, albeit I'm a classical historic premillennialist who condemns uh, Schofield's dispensational perversion of biblical premillennialism. But as such, I observe that the modern state of Israel that now occupies part of the land that was promised to Abraham about 4,000 years ago continues to be an utter rebellion against Christ and his gospel, just as they were throughout most of their history. I also believe contrary to the dual covenant heresy promoted by heretics like John Hagee and others, that the only Jews who have any promise from God of a peaceful future in the promised land of Israel are those who come to God through the cross, through the Son, through their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no Jew who refuses to believe in Christ can call himself one of God's chosen people. I've said that many times. But I do also believe that the Jews who have returned to that land over the past century have done so as a direct result of the providential hand of God, who not only knows the end from the beginning, but he also intervenes, he guides the events of history to bring his ultimate sovereign and perfect will to pass, just as he may have worked in the events of this past Saturday. I believe that he has done this over the past century in beginning to regather the Jews to that land and to set the stage for the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies and the return of Christ to rule and reign as he promised. And as such, because Israel consumes so much of the world's attention, especially now, and because many nations of the world are clearly aligning themselves, as the Bible foretells, in unison against this tiny nation of Israel, we have to take a very hard look, not only at the relevant scriptures, but I believe also at the actual events of history that led to the current state of affairs in modern-day Israel. So I'm going to just recite briefly, very briefly, some of the facts that led up to where we are today. Uh, back in 2016, the UN passed a resolution condemning Israeli settlements on the West Bank, meaning lands that were formerly belonging that belonged to Judah west of the Jordan River. At that time, 2016, which was just a few weeks before uh, Trump uh, took office as in his first presidency, the U.S., under the Obama administration, broke with long-standing tradition and they refused to veto that resolution, that U.N. resolution, condemning those settlements in the West Bank. At the time, an Associated Press article stated, in part, in a striking rupture with past practice, the United States allowed the U.N. Security Council on Friday to condemn Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem as a flagrant violation of international law. In doing so, the outgoing Obama administration brushed aside Donald Trump's demands that the U.S. exercise its veto and provided a climax to years of icy relations with Israel's leadership. So the reactions of Christians to the passage of that resolution was definitely mixed and not, not unified. Some Christians, especially those of the Preterist persuasion, who say the church 
has replaced national Israel. Uh, they say that God is once and forever done with Israel. They say God has no plan to revive the nation and that Israel exists today is not uh, of God's doing or part of God's plan. They would have agreed wholeheartedly with that resolution and the position that Israel had no right to take the lands and the occupied territories in the first place. Other Christians, especially dispensational premillennialists, and those of John Hagee's hyper-dispensational, hyper-Zionist persuasion, and others as well who still believe that Israel still has a claim to those lands under the Abrahamic Covenant, were at that time extremely upset about Obama's refusal to veto that resolution. And they agreed wholeheartedly with uh, Netanyahu that it was a shameful anti-Israel resolution. But the question that remains of international concern today is primarily over Israel's occupation and their settlements that they built in the lands gained in that 1967 Six-Day War, which includes Gaza Strip settlements that were invaded on Saturday and uh, other areas as well um, in the West Bank there, uh, west of the Jordan River, East Jerusalem, Jericho, and Bethlehem. And this, uh, this controversy of Zion is also about how the real property, homes, and lands of many Palestinians was, in fact, stolen out from under the Palestinians by the Israelis, proceeding as though they had every right to do so under the command given to Joshua 3,500 years ago to drive out the Canaanites, which, again, does not apply today. They have no right to drive the Canaanites out of that land. And so this controversy of Zion of Isaiah 34 and Zechariah 12 has much to do with how many of the Palestinian Arabs that have lived in that region for many decades, many of whom claim to be Christian, by the way, how they have been treated by the Jewish government of Israel in a very repressive, tyrannical manner. They have been denied the basic rights of citizenship, the right to vote in local elections, and even much worse. I talked about in my previous series you can go back and listen to. As for that 1967 six-day Arab-Israeli war, it was fought between June 5th to 10th of 1967. We've all heard the, fam the familiar story of how tiny Israel miraculously prevailed in a mere six days in a defensive war for its survival against the overwhelming and vastly outnumbering forces of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan that were massing their forces allegedly on the Israeli border, preparing to attack Israel from three sides allegedly, and that six-day war ended with the Egyptian Air Force obliterated and Israel in possession of the West Bank region of Palestine, Syria's Golan Heights, and Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, and also in control of much of Jerusalem. Sinai was given back to Egypt in the Peace Treaty of 1979, with all Israeli settlers withdrawn a few years later. Well, I remember as a young Christian hearing stories on Christian radio, back when I used to think Christian radio was worth listening to, about how many incidents in that war God worked on Israel's behalf to give them a miraculous victory over superior forces in just six days. That's the version of that six-day war that American Christians have been fed and, and that most of them believe to this day. But it's perpetuated in order to justify Israel's continued occupation of these disputed lands it took in that war. However... Contrary to that popular narrative, the record of documented history shows that Six-Day War was not at all a defensive war on Israel's part, but was clearly a war of aggression designed to take the land, 
which I think we'll see the coming war is going to be uh, even more so. The facts show that in 1967, there was absolutely no threat to Israel at the time they started that war. Yitzhak Rabin, Israel's chief of staff in 1967, who later became prime minister until his assassination in 1995, stated in a 1968 interview, quote, I do not think Nasser wanted war. The two divisions he sent to the Sinai would not have been sufficient to start an offensive against Israel. He knew it, and we knew it. The New York Times reported the following on May 11, 1997. Moshe Dayan, the celebrated commander who was defense minister in 1967, gave the order to conquer the Golan. said, many of the firefights with the Syrians were deliberately provoked by Israel and the kibbutz residents who pressed the government to take the Golan Heights did so less for security than for the farmland. Diane stated, they didn't even try to hide their greed for the land. We would send a tractor to plow some area where it wasn't possible to do anything in the demilitarized area, and knew in advance that the Syrians would start to shoot. If they didn't shoot, we would tell the tractor to advance further, until in the end the Syrians would get annoyed and shoot. And then we would use artillery, and later the Air Force also, and that's how it was. The Syrians on the fourth day of the war were not a threat to us. The former commander of the Israeli Air Force, General Azer Weitzman, stated that there was no threat of destruction, but that the attack on Egypt, Jordan, and Syria was nevertheless justified so that Israel could, quote, exist according to the scale, spirit, and quality she now embodies. So this was totally an aggressive war. On the third day of that six-day war, on June 8, 1967, to prevent discovery of the Israelis' plans to attack Syria on day four of the war, Israel also ruthlessly attacked and they tried to sink the USS Liberty, if you recall. It was a U.S. Navy technical research vessel, a spy ship, if you will, operating in the Mediterranean near the Sinai. And they attacked that U.S. ship using jet fighters and torpedo boats, they were unmarked in order to stop Liberty from monitoring their war preparations. In that attack, 34 American Navy sailors were killed and 171 wounded. They tried to sink that ship and they didn't do it. Israel later tried to claim they had mistaken Liberty for an Egyptian ship. And within 13 years, they ended up paying about $17 million in reparations to the sailors' family and the Defense Department. But that was that's just a small tip of the billions of dollars in the foreign aid that Israel gets from the U.S. every year. And so while American Christians continued to believe that war was a defensive war on Israel's part, it was in fact a war of aggression launched by Israel to expand the goal of Zionism. And again, I repeat, the Bible does not justify the view that modern Israel has any legal or moral or biblical right to reclaim that land at this point in time. God's command to Moses and Joshua given 3,500 years ago to wipe out the Canaanites does not apply today, despite the apparent attitude of leadership in Israel and many Zionist Christians as well. But again, that does not mean that the migration of Jews to Palestine was not orchestrated by the hand of God, which I believe it was. The hand of God working providentially to bring His will to pass in that land. I think that we need to be uh, careful about Blaming Israel for having more influence in American politics than they actually do. That's something that Chuck Baldwin and his ilk does all the time. And so I think that the Vatican has 
far more control over the situation than Zionist Jews do, and we need to avoid that trap. We've looked at Daniel 9 many times in several messages, refuting the preterist and historicist interpretation of that prophecy of the 70 weeks. And while it's clear that the first 69 of those 70 weeks were definitely fulfilled in history, just like the passage in Zechariah 12, Daniel 9 and verse 27 has also not been fulfilled. That reads, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Daniel 9.27 That passage could not have been fulfilled in ancient history and therefore remains to be fulfilled. We've talked about that many times, been over and over that ground. The man who confirms that covenant in that passage is not Christ Jesus, as many erring historicists have been conned into believing and still try to teach today. But it is in fact the Antichrist who will confirm a Christ-denying covenant with a regathered Israel for one seven-year period that will then allow Israel to rebuild their temple and restore temple sacrifices required under the Old Testament law. As, by the way, that will simply be a further expression of their rejection of the true gospel and their refusal to believe in Jesus. The point of that conclusion from Daniel 9.27 as it relates to the controversy of Zion that's right now playing out on televised media before the entire world is that the confirmation of that seven-year covenant takes place at the beginning of the 70th week of years in Daniel 9.27 and there must be a body politic in place in the land of Israel at the beginning of that 70th week, with whom the Antichrist will enter into a covenant to restore those temple sacrifices. And that cannot be done, obviously, after the Jews repent and turn to Christ. Because at that time they would not make a covenant with the Antichrist. That can only be done while that nation is still in rebellion and before they turn to Christ. So they must be brought back, regathered into that land while they're still in blindness and rebellion. And that's why I believe God does still have a purpose for that nation of Israel. And he is still at work in guiding the outcome of the events in that region to set the stage for the return of our blessed Lord. And I also believe that the Jews who have returned to that land over the past century have done so as a result of God's providential hand. Today, Israel holds almost all the land that once belonged to Palestinians. What is left is relentlessly being encroached upon by more Jewish settlements which are deemed illegal under you know, the UN Resolution. Israel erected this wall, this border wall, to curtail attacks on the radicalized Palestinians, but it also imprisons the Palestinians in this huge prison. It cuts them off from land and sources of employment and reinforces their status as second-class citizens, who as a result have no political rights in Israel. According to one report, at least five categories of major violations of international human rights law and humanitarian law characterize the occupation. Unlawful killings by Israelis, forced displacement, abuse of detention, closure of the Gaza Strip, and other unjustified restrictions on movement, the development of more and more settlements, along with accompanying discriminatory policies that greatly disadvantage Palestinians. As covered in more detail in those earlier messages, this is the treatment Palestinians have been shown over the past 50-some years now. 
after losing their land in that 67 war of aggression that was designed to force them out of the land and steal their property. So it's only natural that many Palestinians would have, would have no choice but to resort to violence. And that is what this controversy of Zion is all about. That is why it would have been very easy for Asian provocateurs to get inside Hamas and to you know, egg them on to bring on this attack. So who has a claim of ownership to that land? Who has a right to it? Obviously, the land once belonged to the Jews, and uh, Jerusalem was once their capital. But as they were warned over and over, beginning in Deuteronomy 28, as the prophet Ahijah repeated to evil King Jeroboam, who led Israel into idolatry in 1 Kings 14, For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of this good land, which he gave their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river, because they have made their groves, provoking the Lord to anger. He said there in 1 Kings 14. The Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, lamented over Jerusalem. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, Jesus said, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Obviously, the Jew, Israeli Jews have not yet come to the place where they will welcome the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. And until they come to that place, somewhere toward the end of the tribulation, we can presume that their house is still left to them desolate. Jesus said of the Jews in Luke 21:24 that they shall fall by the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down with the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That verse tells us that Israel and the Jews will not have Jerusalem in full until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Which is, again, when Paul says in Romans 11, that the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, to the church that is, which means at the end of the present church age. So the Bible is crystal clear that God is not through with Israel as a nation, or the Jews as a people, and that the Jews must be regathered to that land once promised to Abraham. And also that they must be gathered to that land while still in a state of unbelief, before the 70th week of Daniel can begin to set the stage for the return of Christ. However, while Ezekiel 28 loosely indicates that during the millennial reign of Christ, those 12 tribes will again possess all the land that was once promised to Abraham, there is not a verse in the Bible I know of that shows that the Jews will be restored to all the land before that time, before the millennium. And personally, I have no problem with concluding that until the Lord, by his divine intervention, gives them all the land he once swore to Abraham, that they should have been expected to share that land with those that God allowed to have the land in their absence. And that solution proposed by the UN, if Israel wanted to have a, a strictly Jewish state by which definition they would be racially segregated, or apartheid state, has for several, several years been a two-state solution. But now... Uh, this present operation being undertaken in Gaza is going to obliterate that possibility. At present, Israel's called up 300,000 reservists to go to war in Gaza. Well, actually, uh, 
probably putting probably a third of those or maybe half of them up north against Hezbollah to the north. Right now, Gaza is completely under siege with their electricity and their food and water supplies shut off by the Israelis. No supplies are being allowed in. Israel is amassing troops, tanks, artillery pieces, and supplies on the border, preparing to invade Gaza and to obliterate Hamas. I do believe this present warfare will indeed expand, and it may well blow up in our land as well, as, there's, as we're put on security alert for tomorrow in America. So all of which, all of this, I do believe, is leading to the ultimate fulfillment of that great prophecy of Zechariah 12 where Jesus said, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Dark days are getting darker. Global jihad may break out tomorrow, as the former leader of Hamas has called for. Britain and the U.S. are both preparing for war with Iran right now as we speak. Iran has reportedly given the green light for Hezbollah to enter the conflict from the north. Russia has advised all Russian citizens to leave Israel immediately on any flight they can get out of Israel. And Russian analysts are actually predicting that things will go very badly for Israel and Gaza. So they're predicting bad things for the army in Gaza. As I said Sunday, those of us who are watching, those of us who love and long for Christ appearing, and who say today with John, as John said in Revelation 22:20, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. We should also then say that if the seven seals on that little scroll have to be loosed and God's judgments poured out before Jesus reigns on this earth, then again, please, Lord, take the scroll and loose those seals. Bring it on, and we'll trust the Lord to go with us through whatever tribulation, trial, or persecution comes our way. We should all prepare to the extent that we are able for days ahead, but we should also focus far more on getting the gospel out than on honing our survival skills. That's all I had for you tonight. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of comments and uh, discussion following that message. So I'm going to open it up this time for comments and discussion.